So nearly 20 months ago, our family brought this sweet little baby girl into our home by God's grace. She's been in our home ever since. About a month ago, the state declared that she was our adopted daughter. And so we celebrated this last night appropriately with cupcakes and cookies. Lots of cupcakes and lots of cookies. Um, my, my boys uh, love parties at our house for two reasons. One, there's, there's always a lot of dessert. And number two, mom and dad are preoccupied. <laughs> you just catch glimpses of them running off into various hiding places with you know, just handfuls of, handfuls of stuff. They had so much sugar last night. It was ridiculous. At one point, I look at my son. I'm having a conversation with somebody, and we've got this, uh, um, I forget what they're called, uh, this little trough thing with water and ice in it. And, uh, and I look over, and my son, uh, Peyton, my oldest, is um, standing in it washing his feet. <laughs> He's just doing this in there cooling himself off, cleaning his feet. Ten minutes later, his little brother Jackson comes, does the exact same thing. Didn't even see him. They just, they think alike when they're high on sugar. And the funny thing is, 10.30 last night, um, party's over. My wife and I are sitting down just uh, talking about the, the party and just enjoying each other's company. And, and about the same time, we have this realization. and We look at each other and say, did we give the boys dinner? No dinner. No dinner. Cupcakes and cookies for dinner. I'm not going to lie. I had at least six cupcakes. I lost track intentionally. And I had some cookies, which could be, you know, somewhere between 10 and, and 20. So I woke up this morning with a, what's called a sugar hangover. And now we come to Genesis chapter 17. Speaking on a topic, it's a good thing I don't preach topically because I would never choose the topic of circumcision. That sounds like a good idea for this Sunday. But God chooses the topic when we go expositionally. So here we are. We're in Genesis chapter 17, and we should pray. We should pray. Let's, let's pray before we get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this day that you have made. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the truth that we find in it. God, I pray that you would, you would open our eyes this morning. God, a, a subject that we, we may be tempted to not take seriously, a subject that, that we may be tempted to look at through uh, spiritually immature eyes or, or, or to shy away from. But God, it is in your word. Um, you do things in ways uh, often that we do not expect and in ways that we are surprised. And you've done it again here when we come to your word. So help us, God, to really see the significance of what you did with your child, Abram. I pray that we be moved by it. I pray that we would be changed by it. I pray that our hearts would be filled with gratitude by and through the study of your word and with the help of your Holy Spirit. God, if ever we need your Holy Spirit's help, we need it now. We need his help to, to shed light on, on the word that we read today. So please, do your good work uh, in me and through me uh, and in the ears of all those listening. Be glorified, God, through the preaching of your word. 
We ask this. We pray for this. We hope for this. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 17. Let me give you a, a little bit of background because we're jumping into the middle of uh, Abram's life. He's, he's 99 years old. A lot has happened. A lot has happened up to this point. Uh, 30 years ago, remember, Abram was, he was uh, 70 years old. Um, not a believer, not a Christian, not a lover of God, not a follower of God. Uh, 70 years old. Uh, he was an idolater and he lived amongst an idolatrous people which means he didn't love God, he loved other things. And that's all idolatry is. All of you have uh, great affections for things. All of you have great love for things. All of you, all of you worship something or someone. In other words, you, you devote your affection and your time and your, your energy and your, uh, your, your heart. You, you devote it to something or someone. Well, you've been made and you've been built, the Bible says, to give that to God. It's owed to Him. Um, you're really most happy, most full of joy when you're doing that. God's glorified when you're doing that. It's the way the universe is, is supposed to work. But we don't. Um, we, we settle for other things. Abram was a guy who settled for other things. He didn't know God, hadn't heard of God, didn't love God. I'm sure he had things in his life that made him happy, but they were just trinkets compared, compared to God. So here he was, an idolater, living amongst an idolatrous people. He's 70 years old. He has, has no children, which was a really big deal then. It was a big deal in that culture. Surely he wanted children. Surely his wife wanted children. They're getting towards the end of that, even being a physical possibility. And God comes to him okay, and makes himself known to Abram and, and tells Abram to get up and to, to leave all of this physical security, to leave everything that he's known for his whole life. And all God says is, is, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He doesn't give him GPS coordinates. He doesn't say this is the light at the end of the tunnel. He just says, listen, I'm God. This is who I am. Um, I want to start something with you. I need you to follow me and go to the land that I will show you. Well, apparently this was a very moving experience for Abram because he does it. He does it. He packs up his wife. He packs up some possessions. He packs some of his, his people up that are helping him and working for him. And they set out to, to head to the land that God says, I'm, I'm going to show you. He travels at least a thousand miles. A long, long way. He travels at least a thousand miles until he gets to, to the place. Um, and, and God tells him once he gets there, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to give this to you. That's the new information God gives him. You see everything you're looking at? I am going to give this land to you. It's going to belong to you. It's going to belong to you forever. That surprises Abram because he looks around. It's not empty. It's not vacant. You think God was going to take him to an empty field or an empty lot. He's like, there's people here. And God says, I know. I'll take care of that. It's yours. And he tells Abram specifically, you remember, this land is going to belong to you and your offspring forever. Now, that would have piqued his interest, right? Because there's no offspring. There's no offspring. There's never been offspring. They've probably given up hope of having any offspring. There are no children. But God just said to me that he's going to give me this land and that it's going to, it's going to belong to my, my lineage, that it's going to belong to my offspring forever. Now, that must have, that must have provided profound relief for a man who had been uh, suffering great shame and embarrassment his whole life because he had no children. It would have been particular for him because you remember his name, Abram, meant father of many. Father of many. 
And so over and over again, he's having to explain to people that while his name means father of many, that he has been childless for his entire life. And so now God comes along and makes a, a promise. You know, hey, I'm glad I'm following you, God. I'm glad I left this. If, 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 if this all means that you're going to, you know, give me and Sarai children, this is good. This is this is wonderful. God makes that promise to him, goes home, tells Sarah. Time goes by. A lot of time goes by. Around 15 years go by. And there's no offspring. God's not coming through. The promise isn't, isn't fulfilled. We, we thought this was going to happen sooner than that. I was hoping, you know, a week, a couple weeks, you know, nine months from now. Nothing. Fifteen years go by. And so Sarai, his wife, comes up with a plan. She's convinced that she's the problem. And so she pushes her husband into the arms of another woman. We're not sure how much she pushed. But Abram goes into the arms of another woman. Okay, He sleeps with Hagar, the maidservant of Sarai. And the plan is that she'll conceive, have a child, and then Sarai will adopt the child as her own. And then all these blessings that God has promised to this family, um, he, can, he can have this child now to do it. So it's a way of saying, you know, God, we know you need offspring. Here, you've promised that my husband's going to have offspring. Apparently, I'm unable to have children, so we got a plan, and we'll help you out. Here's your child. You're welcome, God. You're welcome. Here's, here's the baby. And God, of course, is thinking, this is not, this is not my plan. This is not my, my intention. I imagine there was a lot of emotions in the household at that time. We read about some of them. Abraham was surely proud, as every dad is. Okay, here he has his, his son, his, his firstborn son. Was this child the, the result of sin? Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that this child is a reward from God. So here's this wonderful, wonderful blessing. Abram is proud. However, every time Sarai looks at this child, she's reminded, number one, of her sin. She's reminded of her, her finagling plan to try to help God accomplish his purposes. But she also, when she sees this child, right, she sees confirmation in her mind that she was the problem. Right? Was it was it Abram? Was it me? You know, who? Which one of us is incapable of having children? Now, immediately when she pushes her husband to the arms of another woman, here's this child. So what is confirmed in Sarah when she looks at this baby is that I'm barren. I can't have children. In a culture where she wanted desperately to have a child. So now they've got this 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 dysfunctional family. Many of you. Most of you probably come from dysfunctional families. Many of you come from families that are not the typical nuclear family, mom and dad and kids. Okay, this was the situation that, that, that Abram and Sarai and Hagar and then this little boy, Ishmael. This is where they, they found. Some of you have the same, uh, same kind of parents that Ishmael had, right? This is my dad. This is my mom. This is my dad's wife. So this complicated family that is living together here. And so when we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, Ishmael's 13 years old now. Okay, so more time, more time has gone by. Okay, it's almost 30 years now since God originally came to Abram and said, I'm going to give you offspring. Okay, it was going to be a child, I promise it. So 13-year-old Ishmael, and Abram is now 99 years old. And we'll start reading the first few verses here. 
Uh, God's going to give an opening statement. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face. So God gives an opening statement and his opening statement is, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. A couple of things to notice right off the bat. First, we've got this word covenant again. We've already seen it with Abram in chapter 15, which was the, the first stage, if you will, of God's covenant with Abram. And now chapter 17 here is the second stage of this covenant that God is making with Abram. But we've also seen God making covenants with, uh, with Adam and with Noah before Abram. So remember what covenant is. It's good to remember what it is because it's not a word we use often and its meaning is 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 somewhat lost in today's society. So when you see the word covenant in your Bible, okay, know at least this that when the Bible mentions covenant, it is talking about a, a, a sacred, solemn, intimate relationship. Okay, at the very least. Covenant is your Bible's word for a solemn and sacred and intimate relationship. Because you've got the covenant between God and His people. A solemn, sacred, intimate relationship. We, we call, some of you call marriage a covenant. It is a covenant. It is to be a covenant. Okay, between a husband and a wife. It's a solemn, sacred, intimate relationship. Okay, some would call, we do, the relationship between members of a church, a covenant relationship. It is a solemn, sacred, and intimate relationship. It is a, a sacred, sacred bond. This is what covenant is in your Bible. Now, there's covenants that you and I make, and there's, and there's covenants among us, and there's covenant between us and God. And there's a covenant between us and God, like here, between Abram and God. Okay, a covenant with God is always these three things. Remember? Okay, God's covenants are unilateral, they are eternal, and they are gracious. It's unilateral, which means that God initiates this. Okay, if you are in covenant with God, do not think that you sought and found God. God sought and found you. You did not initiate anything with God. You were not looking. Oh, there you are. Found good. You did not do that. And you weren't, and you weren't looking, by the way. You weren't looking. At some point you were looking and at some point you were seeking, but you were seeking and you were looking because he had already sought and found you. It's a matter of what was foundational. Well, clearly Scripture teaches that God initiates. And God is the source. And God is the one who starts this relationship. So that's what he does. He comes and finds Abram and begins a relationship with him while Abram is a 70-year-old idolater amongst an idolatrous people. There's no church down the street. And if there was, he's not going there. He doesn't love God, but God initiates a relationship. So this covenant with God, it's unilateral. It's also eternal. So not only does God initiate this covenant relationship, God keeps this covenant relationship. Right, so here you are. You're in covenant with God, God's people. Whoever you are, God's people here today, you're in relationship with God. Sacred, solemn, intimate relationship. The Bible's word is covenant. 
You're in covenant with God like Abram was in covenant with God. God initiated it, but God keeps it. In other words, praise God. This thing isn't riding on you. And it's not hanging on you. And it's not about that. This is why when we sing songs to God, we don't sing about our faithfulness. We sing about God's faithfulness. We sing about God's faithfulness because he is the one who keeps. He keeps the covenant. You may go your own way. You may fall. You may stumble. You may turn. You may sin. You may rebel. You may disobey. But God says, but I am not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. So the, the covenant is eternal. So that means that you and I, if you're in covenant with God, it means that you will never know again what it's like to be without God. Think about that. You will never taste real distance from God ever again. How long? How long is this? God, thank you. Initiating this relationship with me. How long are we going to be together? What's God's response? Well, this is a never give up, always, no matter what kind of relationship. Why are you sure about that? Because I know, I know myself, and I think you're gonna I think you're gonna want to bail at some point. Does God divorce His people? God does not divorce His people. He doesn't. Why does God hate divorce? Incidentally, between a husband and a wife, because this is not a picture of covenant. God loves His people, so God says He's not going anywhere. So God's covenant with us, with Abram, it's it's unilateral, it's eternal, and it's gracious. That's very important. It's very important to understand that it's gracious. Grace is what? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is not a paycheck. It's not you get something good because you did something good. Now, you you did a lot of bad, and you still get good from God. This is God's grace. And when God makes his covenant with Abram, it wasn't because there was anything good in Abram. So you might be tempted to think that, wow, God's initiating something with me, and God is sticking with me, Therefore, this is human reasoning. I must be good. I must be worthy. I must be valuable. I must be deserving. That must be the difference between me and the guy that God's not in covenant with. It must be that I'm better than him. But the truth is that God's covenant is always gracious. So God initiates it. God keeps it. And we don't deserve it. It's very important we remember that when it comes to covenant. So you see little pictures of covenant in this world, but none compares to the relationship we have with God. Probably the greatest place you see it is between a husband and a wife, between a husband and a wife who are truly devoted to one another. When a husband and a wife are not devoted to one another, when a husband and a wife don't stick with one another, that does not that does not paint a portrait of God. Jesus never leaves his bride. But when you see a couple who stays together and a couple who's devoted to one another and who loves one another, everybody, everybody sees that and says there's something special there. Everybody sees that and says there's something beautiful there. And the reason you say there's something beautiful there is because you see something of God. You're reminded of of, of a character, the character of God. You're reminded of qualities in God. God is the only thing good and beautiful in this universe. There is nothing good or beautiful in the universe other than God. And so when you see anything good and beautiful, it's God coming through. It's not some inherent good or inherent beauty. God has to author all of it. So when you see in a husband and a wife, right, you're you're seeing and you're being reminded of how much God loves his people. And you see it most, right, when you when you, you know, it is the. It is the elderly woman. 
sitting at her husband's bedside while he leaves this world. She's been loving him for decades. I mean, who's not moved by that? And when, when a young couple gets married and comes together, we, we love that. We love that. And it's beautiful. But it's different, isn't it? Have you seen the grocery store? You've seen the, the old man, the old woman holding hands. There's something beautiful there. Well, why? Why does that, why does that stir something in your heart? Because it's showing you something about God. It's showing you something about God. It's reminding you of His never give up, no matter what kind of love. This is God's love for His people. And so what is God doing here with Abram? That's what He's doing with Abram. God is pursuing Abram. God is initiating something with Abram. God is making promises to Abram. God is keeping a covenant relationship with Abram. So that's the first thing. See covenant here in chapter 17. A second thing to notice is a pattern that is established right here in the first few verses. It is a pattern of your Bible, but it's a pattern that's carried out throughout this text. And the pattern is this. Uh, God will initiate and Abram will respond. Okay. God initiates and Abram responds. This is how the world works. God initiates and man responds. It is never the other way. It is never man initiates and God responds. So God is not in the dock. God does not work for us. We don't do things that God is then programmed to respond to us. That is not how the universe works. God initiates. And if God initiates, we respond. So God talks and then man talks. You see us throughout the Bible. God talks. Sometimes man tries to interrupt God. And God says, no, no, I have the floor forever. God speaks, man speaks. Man speaks before God speaks. It's his folly. It's his shame. God speaks, man speaks. God acts, man acts. That is always the pattern in your Bible. And it's no different here. So we see this. God comes and initiates. I am God Almighty, Abram. Here's what you're to do. Walk before me. Be blameless. I'm establishing a covenant relationship with you. And then what does Abram do? Abram responds. What's his response? Abram fell on his face. That is a good response. (laughs) I am God Almighty. Done. Face ground. Some of you are not expressive. Abram was expressive. He wasn't worried about what people were thinking. His face... Hit the ground. You must be expressive in your relationship with God. You must be expressive in your relationship with God. It is not enough to say, I love you, God. You must express your love for God. Now, I'm not saying that that means don't connect the dots and say that that just means that you're expressive in public worship. That may be a way that you express your love for God. But if your love is just for God, is just an intellectual thing that you talk a lot about, but there's no obedience. There's expression. Be expressive. Obey God. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Our love must be expressive to God. And sometimes our love is expressive to God in response to His word 
the way Abram was. I mean, he's just read, read about Abram, read about Job, read about Isaiah. What happens when they come into the presence of God? What happens when God speaks? I'll tell you one thing. They shake. They shake. They tremble when they're in God's presence. Because they're in God's presence. God comes to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. And Abram falls on his face before God. When we do worship publicly as a church, you need to know and you need to hear that you have the freedom to worship God expressively. I will say that. Worship God expressively here. Now, if your expression, if your expression causes others to leave, it's probably too, we're not going to like, some of you would like us to clear out the first few rows here so you can just have some room, like a worship pit up here. We're probably not going to do that. And I know some of you are conservative and you're like hands are nailed to your hips and like this is all you're getting right here. This is all you're getting. But some of you, some of you walk in here and you say, okay, this is a little more conservative than what I'm used to. There's no banners. There's no, there's no flags. There's no dancing. There's, you know, not, maybe not a lot of hands up. I don't know. I'm in the front. Uh, why aren't they clapping? It's like, we're just, that's just who we are. It's kind of a conservative bunch, but feel free. To express your love for the Lord. Okay, David starts dancing around out in the street. His wife's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what he's doing. He's like, you ain't seen nothing, honey. I'm holding back right now. I'll become way more undignified than this. So that's okay. Now don't do that, though. Don't do that. Like, don't. So be careful there. Don't show up in your underwear next week. We have security, and they will, they will escort you off the premises. Where are we? Verse 4. Hey, someone said amen to that. That's great. Verse 4. Behold. Okay, God, so God said to him. Here, so God's initiating more. Right? That's the pattern. Behold. Let's read through verse 8. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So this is new. He said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Now he says, I'm going to make a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Now, we don't have time to get into all or we're not going to take the time to get into all that this has to say, but this is huge. I mean, this is over the top blessing that God is promising to Abram and his offspring, which Romans and Galatians, Paul tells us as modern day believers that we are what? Guess what? Abram's offspring. We are his offspring. We're like our daddy Abraham in that we have the faith of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and I am one of them. This is true. You're a child. So these blessings and these promises for Abram are for us as Christians today. So this this is just huge because God then says to the offspring, which we are just over the top promises of what God is going to do. Again, he says, I will seven times. I will. 
I will, I will. And he covers three areas here at least of what he's going to do for Abram in regards to lineage and land and the Lord. He's going to give him the Lord. He's going to give him himself. He's going to give him land. He's going to give him offspring and lineage. How does he talk about his offspring? You'll be exceedingly fruitful, he said. I will, from you will come a multitude of, not just one nation, a multitude of nations. He says kings. Kings are going to come from you, Abram. That's much more even than the offspring that he'd already promised him. So it just keeps getting better and better. He says land, verse 8. Verse 8, the, the land that he's in right there. He said the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession for you and for your offspring. So lineage, land, and the greatest thing God gives is himself, isn't it? The Lord. He says at the end there, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Right, Christian, you know this. The greatest thing you get is God. The greatest thing you get is God. It's not your church. It's not fellowship. It's not uh, not new circumstances. It's not wealth. It's not health. It's not riches. What you get is God. And the greatest thing you could get is God. And the greatest gift that God can give is himself. And he gives it. He gives it to us. This is why Paul could say, right, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He says, for me to live, it's all about Jesus. When I die, it's gain. When you die, right, when that moment comes and you die, you lose something and you gain something. All of us will. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And when we die, we're going to lose something and we're going to gain something. Now, here's what we're going to lose. Everything. Everything. And here's what we're going to gain. Jesus. That's it. So Paul looks at that, right? This is a statement that the greatest thing I have is God. It's not my stuff. It's not my family. It's not my possessions. It's not my health. It's not my church. It's, it's not, the greatest thing that I have is God. Okay, Peter said, Jesus Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to bring us to Him. So Paul says that when I die, it's gain. So when I die and I lose everything, it's not like you die, Christian, and then on the other side is Jesus with all your stuff. How about this, huh? Your car is over here. Here's your garage. You've got more tools. It just gets better. No, it's just Jesus on the other side and nothing else. And Paul says that's a great deal. That's a great deal. I count it gain. Why? Because God is the greatest gift. So the greatest thing that God is telling Abram Right. The greatest thing that he's telling him is not the lineage, is not the land, but that I'm going to be your God. He's saying, son, I found you. And listen, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You can have the land, you're going to die. You can have the family, you're going to die. But you will always have me. There's going to be times you're going to feel like I'm gone and I'm not gone. There's going to be times you're going to feel like you're alone and you're not alone. There's going to be times where you're going to feel like you're abandoned. You haven't been abandoned. You're going to feel like you've been deserted. You're going to feel, but you haven't. This is God's promise. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never get tired of you. I'll never get fed up with you. I'll never quit. I'll never give you a bill of divorce. I'll never run the other way. I'll never take a break. It's a never give up, no matter what. Always love devotion from God to his people. 
This is the greatest thing that Abram hears. Now, kind of funny, God changes his name. God changes his name. Now, I want you to imagine this, right? Because his name has been a sore spot his whole life. The poor guy, God comes and says, listen, Abram, I'm going to change your name. Now, if you're Abram, you're thinking, thank you, God. Finally, right? I mean, 86 years, he was the father of none with the name father of many. Now, 13 years have gone by and he's the father of one, but he's still got the name father of many. And God says, listen, I've decided I'm going to change your name. Thank you, God. It is seriously about time. This name has been brutal. I knew this was one of the blessings that was going to come. What's my new name? (laughs) And what does God say? From now on, your name will not be Father of Many. Thank you, Lord. Your name will be Father of a Multitude of Nations. (laughs) Are you kidding me, Lord? This is what God does. right? just over the top. He He makes promises so huge that it just... We can't even imagine. We can't even imagine. Because His glory is all the greater when He comes through. So He, he changes His name. He goes, I can't even imagine Him going home and saying, guess what, I changed my name. And they're thinking the same thing. You couldn't handle it anymore, huh? What's the new name? Father of a multitude. He's cracked. He's cracked. <laughs> You'd love to be there, wouldn't you? Verse 9. So God's going to look for a response now. God, four through eight, is just, I will, I will, I will. This is God saying, here's what, what I'm going to do. And now God is looking for a response. And God said to Abram, as for you. So God says, this is my end. This is what I'm going to do. And now it's your turn. This is what you must do. I initiated, but now you must. Verse nine, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Yeah, this is a, it's a big thing that God's asking from Abram. If you remember Abram's recent track history, it isn't that great. But God comes and says, as for you, you must keep my covenant. And we go back to verse one. And what did God say to him? Okay, I am God Almighty, and you must do what? Walk before me and be blameless. And that's a tall order for a sinful man. You must be blameless, and you must walk before me. Okay, God's covenant call of his people is no different today. Christian, you must walk with God, and you must be blameless. This is what God requires of us, to walk with God and to be blameless. To walk with God, it means to stick close to God. We need to stick close to God. Don't go wandering off from God. Like Enoch walked with God, like Adam and Eve in a literal sense in the garden walked with God. You're supposed to walk with God. You're supposed to be mindful of God. You're supposed to be talking to God. You're supposed to be hearing from God. You're supposed to be communing with God. You're supposed to be meditating on God's word with God's people in God's church. Walk before God. Walk with God. That is where, Christian, you belong. Do not waver. Do not depart. Don't go your own way, but walk with God. If you have or have had little kids, you know that you say this to your kids often. And you say this to your kids when you're in a place where there is a lot of danger for them if they don't walk with you. Or you're in a parking lot and you park far from where you need to be and there's cars everywhere and 
people are backing up. And, and so you tell your kids when you're walking to the store, okay, like I would say to my kids when we're walking to the store, okay, walk with me. Walk with me. Don't wander off. So, you know, one's holding one hand, another's holding the other hand. One holds mom's purse. One's got my shirt. One's, you know, dragging my ankle. And we're, we're walking in. Now, are they paying any attention to where they're going? Oh, absolutely not. They're going to walk right off a cliff. I mean, they're, they're looking straight down at their feet. No idea what's ahead of them or they're looking up in the sky. Okay, but mom and dad know where we're going, right? And, and the kids are going to be okay if what? If they walk with us. You just need to walk with You need to stick close. God says to his people, you need to stick close to me. You need to walk with me. Be close and be blameless. Blameless. Blameless does not mean sinless. <laughs> but blameless means that there is no unrepentant sin. Listen, God's people are sinners and the church is full of sinners. If you walked into a church or you walked into this church thinking that you're in a place where these people are holier than you in the sense that they are not sinners and you are a sinner, well, that's just flat out wrong. You're surrounded by dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. The church is a place for sinners, but the church is a place for repentant sinners. We're repentant sinners. It means we do not love our sin. We do not like our sin. It means we're turning from our sin. It means that we're sorry for our sin. It means that we're confessing our sin. It means that we're fighting our sin. It means we want to see our sin mortified, as Paul says. It means we want to see our sin brought to light. It means that we like people rebuking us. It means that we want to walk in the light and not in the darkness. So there is no unrepentant sin. And there is to be no unrepentant sin among God's people. There is not to be secrets among God's people. And so Paul looks, so God looks at Abram and says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. But you must walk before me. You must be blameless. You must keep this covenant. Now, here's the thing we need to be clear on. Remember this, that when God says, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this, make sure we don't ever get this backwards. Make sure we don't start thinking that what we do is a prerequisite for what God does. What we do is a consequence of what God does. Do you hear that? So God says, I will. And then he looks at you and I and he says, and you must. But God does not say you must. And then I will. Right. God initiates says, Here's what I'm going to do. I don't care what you do. God says in that sense, I don't This is what I'm doing no matter what. And here's what you must do. And you will do this because I will do this. I will move so powerfully in you and through you that you will ultimately do what I'm asking you to do. But you will not do it because there's something inherently good and wonderful in you and you have a capacity that no one else has and that's why I picked you. And I don't wait to see how you're going to respond and then I decide, oh, I love you too. No, I'm going to love you. I'm going to save you and I'm going to work in you and I'm going to change you. 
and then you're going to love me. And you will love me, God says, because I first loved you. I don't love you because you first loved me. God initiates and we respond. Now, that response, what we're saying, right? That response, obeying God, loving God, honoring God, is not possible unless God works within. Unless God works in the heart. Now, this is why the sign of this covenant is circumcision. Now we need to understand what is circumcision? Why is this a symbol and a sign of this covenant relationship with God? This is not arbitrary. What is God teaching Abram? What is God teaching his people? So verse 10 and following, right? What does God ask Abram to do? This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So God's beginning to tell him, okay, we've got this covenant now, this relationship, and here's the sign. Every time you read of a covenant in your Bible, okay, a covenant is something that's taking place spiritually, right? That you see the fruit of, but you don't see. It's a spiritual bond, relationship, devotion to one another. But then there's an, always a, an outward sign a physical reality that you look to and it reminds you of the spiritual reality. Right? Like the covenant with Noah and the sign was the rainbow. I'm thinking Abram wished he could have the rainbow. <laughs> Why can't that just be my sign? How about I just look at the rainbow and I remember, do I really need to grab this knife right now? 99 years old. Shaky 99-year-old man and an entire household of adults and his junior high son. I'm just, I'm floored. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And we're going to read, and everyone is going to do this. I mean, I'm floored by the obedience of Abraham. The obedience of Abraham and apparently his reputation among his household. That everyone was willing because they honored him. They didn't know God because they honored him and respected him. That they follow through with this. This is a godly man. Verse 14. God uses a play on words. He has a sense of humor. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant, which gets us to what it is that God is demonstrating and talking about this cutting off. 
two things. There's a lot more we could there's a lot more we could say about circumcision, but two things a physical reminder. It is it is for God's people here. It was a physical reminder that God's people were cut off from the world. In this sense, they were set apart to serve the one true God. This was a physical reminder, Abram, your people. This is a physical reminder that you have been cut off from the world. You've been made holy. You've been set apart. You have been consecrated. You have been cut off from the world and you've been cut off from the world to serve the one true God. The difference between people and God's people is that God's people serve the one true God. You're a Christian. You have friends who are not Christians. The only difference is that you serve the one true God. You know him and you love him. And your life belongs to him. You're devoted to him. He is your Lord. He is your savior. He is your treasure. You're in a covenant relationship with God. And this is what God has done with his people. God has cut off his people from the world. He owns his people in a very special way. God owns all people, if you want to use that word. God is the creator of all people. God is the creator of all things. Everything in the universe belongs to God. Psalm 5010, cows on a thousand hills, everything, it's God's. But God owns his people in a very special way. And God's people in a very special way belong to God. And they belong to God for the purpose of praising his name. We are cut off from the world to serve the one true God. And circumcision was a physical reminder for Abram and his people of this. Secondly, Circumcision is a sign of the covenant, is a sign pointing, okay, something outward pointing to something inward. In this case, it is an outward sign pointing to the need for the people's hearts to be cut off for God. For their hearts to be set apart to God. My Paul talks about this in Romans, in Romans chapter 4. Well, great, he's saying, you're physically circumcised. Congratulations. He says, you understand, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. It's just outward. If that's not an outward sign pointing to your heart being circumcised, your heart being cut off from the desires of this world, and set apart for God to love him and to serve him and to honor him. So what God is actually after in his people then and now is a circumcision of the heart, which your Bible speaks about. It is that our hearts would be circumcised to the point today in the new covenant, no longer under the old covenant with its regulations, be circumcised. You have freedom whether or not you're going to be circumcised or not, but you do not have freedom as to whether or not your heart is circumcised. Our hearts must be set apart for God. So the the Bible uses the word circumcision and uncircumcision for like cleanness and uncleanness. You have uncircumcised lips, the Bible can say, meaning your lips are unclean. They're not set apart for God. 
You have uncircumcised hearts, meaning they're not circumcised hearts. They're not hearts that have been cut open for God, for his glory and for his honor. Let me support that with two texts. One we'll come back to in the conclusion. The first one is Jeremiah chapter four, one through four. And here here's the Old, uh, Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Okay, the Israelite boys are still being circumcised on the eighth day, but God makes it clear that this is what I'm really after. That's an outward sign pointing to something that needs to happen spiritually. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Listen how graphic he is. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest what happen if we don't, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You think it's important to have your heart circumcised? It is. Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16, and this the one will return to later. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This sounds exactly like what we're familiar with God calling us to do. Jesus said, let me summarize all God's commands in two statements. Love God, love your neighbor. How much do I love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul? Love your neighbors yourself. Okay, God has always called his people to love him like this. But what happens before you love God like this? What does Moses say? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. R.C. Sproul says in Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. The prophet reminds the people that they cannot rightfully trust in the mark of circumcision for covenant blessings. Rather, they have to experience the inner reality of a circumcised heart that the circumcision in their flesh is to signify. The Lord's covenant of salvation has always been a covenant of the heart. So Christian, your heart must be circumcised. And what the Bible is saying and what Jeremiah is saying and what Moses is saying and what God is saying is your baptism doesn't mean anything. And your good deeds don't mean anything. And your church attendance doesn't mean anything. And your worship doesn't mean anything. And your nice, neat family doesn't mean anything. And your words mean nothing if your heart does not belong to the Lord. And a heart that belongs to God is a heart that has been cut off from the world. It is a heart that has been circumcised. And so what God is really after and reminding His people of with a physical sign 
We need to be cut off for God. We need to be drastically cut off from the world and its desires and devoted solely, solely to God. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Abram may be learning for the first time that God does not plan to fulfill his promise through Ishmael. Okay, Ishmael was the result of faithlessness, not faithfulness. Ishmael was not a miraculous birth. Isaac will be a miraculous birth. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? He can't believe he just can't believe it. And Abraham said to God, This is sad. This is a sad statement. Oh that Ishmael might live before you. You hear that? I mean, he's looking at his life. He just made a mess of his life, hasn't he? I mean, his family's a mess right now. All right, this is my dad. This is my mom. This is my dad's wife. He says, I've got this son. Can, can he be, he loves his boy. Can, can he be the offspring that you've promised? God's response. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The New Testament reflects back on this. You've got two, two boys here. And one is the child of the promise and the other is the child of the faithlessness of Abram and Sarai. And so God gives Abram some hard news here, doesn't he? So listen, I know you love your boy. Okay, but my covenant is going to be through Isaac. See some other hard truths, don't we? God gives some grace because God is gracious to all and God loves all. God doesn't just love His people. He loves His people in a very special, unique way. But God loves all people and He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He loves all people. And God provides good things for people who, who do not love God. Ishmael would be an example. 
Nothing in Ishmael that we see, nothing in Isaac that we see, nothing in Jacob that we see, nothing in Esau that we see. But God's got a plan for one and God has a plan for the other. And the one, God is going to leave him in his sin and the other is going to be rescued from his sin. But God, because he is gracious and merciful and he loves Abram and he loves his son, is going to bless Ishmael greatly in this life. The truth is, is that God blesses people who don't deserve blessing. God gives good things to those who do not deserve good things. Some of you struggle with that. Some of you, some of you have a hard time, I know, because you know people who, who have so many good things, it seems, happening in their life, and they're not even Christians, is what we think. They don't even love God. And here I am loving you, and he gets the promotion. Do not be jealous. For one, their heaven is right now. And your heaven is to come. For those who don't love God, this life is as good as it gets. For those who love God, this life is nothing. It's a foretaste. It only gets better. As well, it is true, isn't it, that while God forgives sin, there are consequences to sin. Abram sinned when he slept with Hagar. Now, God has forgiven Abram of his sin. But there are consequences. He has a dysfunctional family. He has a a difficult family. He has complications in his family. Because there are consequences. But God is gracious. God is loving. God is kind. And he even here grants the request of Abram. I'll make him great. I'll make him great. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. Here's Abram's response now. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let me read again in conclusion, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. And make a statement in regards to this text. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So here's what our Bible says. Okay, everyone, Christian, not Christian, you are obligated to love God. 
to serve Him, to honor Him, to obey Him. You should love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Now the Bible also tells us that we do not have the moral ability to love God this way. Because we're born sinful. We love the world. We love sin. We love ourselves. We love to go our own way. We love independence. We love autonomy. We do not by nature love God. And your heart is described, Proverbs 4.23, is the wellspring of your life. So everything, your desires, your thoughts, your actions, your words, the Bible says it starts where? From your heart. They don't just appear. They begin in your heart. And your heart, Jeremiah 17.9, is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So the core of who we are is, is not bent towards loving and honoring God. It is bent in the opposite direction. And ever since Adam, we have been born running from God. Sinners by nature. Sinners by choice. But God says, you must love me with all of your heart. And so then we come across the words that say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, your heart must be what? Circumcised. And so Moses tells the Israelites, so circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. He's saying, change your heart. So that begs the question. We should be wanting to know, how do I circumcise my heart? How do I circumcise my heart? How do I change my heart? So there are new desires and and new behavior and new words so that God is honored, so that He gets what is owed Him, so that there's real joy in my life. How do I change my heart? How do I alter the seat of all of that so that everything that flows from me is different. Now give me three easy steps. How do I do this? Well, we may not like the response. The response is, you cannot. Amen. You cannot. You cannot change your own heart. Have you ever tried? You ever tried to do something you don't want to do? It is impossible. I mean, you eventually do it, but it's because you want to. You cannot circumcise your heart. But you must. It must be a work of God. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. Couldn't be more clear. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the heart is deceitful beyond all things. 
Right. Your heart must be changed. It must be circumcised. How do I do that? You cannot. The Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart so that you will love him with all your heart. What the knife did for Abram, the spirit does for your heart. That's that's what the reality is that God is drawing out here. The Holy Spirit will cut your heart. The Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. The Holy Spirit will change your heart. And now we've got these outward signs like baptism and communion and worship. These things we do outwardly that are pointing, Lord willing, to an inward reality that our hearts belong to God. But your heart belongs to God. Because God changed your heart. Not because you changed your heart. Not because you invited Jesus into your heart. But because God changed your heart. He came upon you in grace. And did not leave you to yourself. And changed you forever. Now for modern day Americans, these kinds of applications are frustrating. Because what do we want to know? Tell me what to do. Right now. How do I make it happen? How do I fix this? And we say, well, you can't. Well, you can't. We say, well, that's not very good evangelistic tactic. You got to give them something to do so they do it. It's like 101 here. You don't tell them to do something that they cannot do. Well, thank goodness that we're not trying to persuade neutral hearts. I mean, that'd be one thing if your hearts were all neutral and you could just be swayed one way or the other. And and sure, let's just try to push you in one direction. No, our hearts are bent on sin. Our hearts are not for God. And me telling you that you cannot change your heart is not going to make your heart hard. Your heart is hard. It's not going to affect it. But to those whom God is saving, you'll give the credit where the credit is due. So this is crucial for those of you who love God to understand this truth. And it's a truth that gets swept under the carpet. And it's a truth that gets philosophized. And it's a truth that gets dismissed. And it's a truth that gets forgotten. You need to understand that you love God because God changed you. Remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus and saying, okay, what do I need to do? And Jesus looked at him and said, why don't you go be born again? He probably had the same frustration. It is a work of God that precedes our work. Now, if you're here today and you don't love God, and you know you don't love God, and you're you're feeling a sort of thanks for nothing at the end of this sermon, because you, you tell me what I need to do, you tell me I can't do it, And then you tell me what I need. God has to do it. And I can't make him do it. That may make you feel frustrated. If we push a little further, maybe you'll feel desperate. 
If we push you a little further, maybe you will beat your chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And friends, you shall have it. But you're trying to own this thing. You're trying to do this thing. You're trying to fix this thing. You will not cross that line. You will be unsuccessful. So, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And your friends are around you praying that the Lord would send His Spirit to circumcise your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is, there is nothing that is more enjoyable than loving you. And there is nothing more enjoyable than worshiping you and thinking on you. God, there is, there is nothing more pleasurable in our life than loving you and showing affection to you. And God, we have you to thank for removing all of our misconceptions for removing all of the lies. We once saw even more dimly, God, and we thought that this world was all there was, and we thought that the joy we had was was tapped out. We thought this was as good as it can get. And by Your grace, God, You opened our eyes to a whole new world. You opened our eyes to a whole new universe where there is real treasure where there's real kings, where there's real joy, where there's real glory. And we will sing of it forever. Father, be glorified as Your saints come forward and eat this bread and drink this juice and remember how we were adopted into Your family. Because our elder brother died for us. He gave his life for us. So that we could bear his name. And be adopted into your family to become your sons and daughters to live in your home. To inherit your wealth. To become citizens in your kingdom forever. Thank you, God. We love you. We give you all praise. We give you all glory, all honor. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.